Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week comes live from the BFI South Bank, where every month I do my live MK3D show. And what a packed show it is this week. Our guests include Cornish filmmaker Mark Jenkin, talking about his new film, Bait, which went down very well at the Berlin Film Festival. Nick Broomfield on his new documentary, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. Shola Amu talking about the forthcoming release, The Last Tree. And Gurinder Chadha and Safraz Manzor on the magic of Bruce Springsteen and being blinded by the light. So sit back and enjoy this month's MK3D live from the BFI South Bank. Uh, good evening. Uh, f- fantastic to see so many of you here, particularly since, as you know, there's, um, uh, it's quite difficult getting across the bridge. Uh, there's an instinction uh, rebellion uh, demonstration going on. Good for them. But uh, no, yes, hooray. I'm very glad. I mean, I think generally weighing up the seeing the beginning of the MK3D bit when he just does the talking to the audience or saving the planet, the second one probably does narrow, but you know. Um, so, we've got a fantastically packed show tonight. Loads and loads of stuff going on. If you, who here hasn't been before? Oh, actually, that's great. That's a larger number of people who haven't. For a, Okay, it's, I'm going to pick on you just because you're there. It's fine. It will all make sense. There are moments when it will seem like the whole show is falling apart, but they're all planned. <laughs> it's like a Brechtian alienation device so that afterwards you can go back and do this in your own community. Okay, so thanks for coming. Um, Okay, so for the last couple of shows, we've abandoned the tweet in your questions and we've just done the stick your hand up and we'll have a go, okay? Now, as you probably know, I'm slightly wary of this, but it's gone well for the last two times. So let's see if we can get away from it for a third time. If you have any question at all that you want, within reason, stick your hand up in the end, we will run a microphone to you. Yes, there, wait one second. And let me just say, just to be clear, Lovely that you put your hand up straight away, and that's brilliant because it broke the ice. How your question goes will define the rest of the evening, okay? <laughs> and, and many people have fought traffic to get here, okay? Okay, so I apologise for this question in advance then. Oh dear. Um, but uh, I'm <laughs> okay. just wondering, Mark, um, yes. are there any films which are you know, sort of widely regarded as classic films which you as a critic ought to have seen, but which you admit to not having oh, seen? Oh, that's so... Okay. There's... <laughs> Right. There is, you know, my my wife is an academic. Um, She's she's actually a proper professor. And I've seen drunk academics play this game called I Haven't Read. Okay? (laughs) And it's basically what happens is you get people who, like, teach English literature. And one of them says, okay, you know, I've never read, um, you know, Occam's Razor. And then someone else says, 
you know, I've never read Emma. And, and you, could, you have to all, it has to be, and I've literally sat in rooms with people who are teaching subjects that they have never read any of at all. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are loads of things that I haven't seen. There was a long time when I hadn't seen Citizen Kane, because I kind of felt like I'd seen Citizen Kane, because like everyone feels like they know all the stuff. And then I came, actually came here to see a screening of it. And I, and I loved it, I thought it was brilliant, but I was really amazed by how much I had imagined a version of Citizen Kane that was nothing like the version that Orson Welles did. And weirdly enough, the Orson Welles version was better than the version that I had imagined in my head. Um, Nick, you probably know this. What, what haven't I, what's my guilty secret? What haven't I seen? And you can be honest, up to a point. <laughs> you see, he's my conscience, like Jiminy Cricket. No, I've seen everything, apparently. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I hadn't seen War and Peace until they did that reissue. Um, oh, Napoleon I hadn't seen until they did, until they did the, 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 the triptych version of it here. So it was a long time that I hadn't seen Napoleon, and I think I lied about it. I think, I think when people said, have you ever seen Napoleon? I said, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I can't think of anything else that's really, really obvious. Um, no, I'm pretty much perfect. Thank you for that. It's great. <laughs> okay, that went well. Anyway, so over there at the back there. Just to follow that up then. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> any films that the, the general critical consensus is that it's a solid goal, great movie, but you can't stand it, you hate it? I, well, I've got into trouble in the past for, for, for the, for the Jean-Luc Godard stuff because uh, largely because when film socialism played at Cannes and I did think it was just preposterous beyond words and everyone sort of really loved it. And then, but what had happened was this was predated by a thing in which I said that the Jim McBride remake of Breathless was better than Abu Dassouf. And I was, you know, partly I was saying it to be annoying and partly I was saying because I just really fancy Richard Gere and it was just a, th it was a thing. Um, so what else is that, that everybody I, um, people love breaking the waves and I can't stand it in fact I one of the uh, there was I'll, I'll do a short version of this story I went to see breaking the waves and I hated it I really really hated it and I went home and um, my wife the weekend was coming my wife said oh I want to go to the cinema to see breaking the waves and I said no you don't it's terrible and she said no but people I respect like it <laughs> So we, we, so I said, okay. So we went to the the, the Harbour Lights in Southampton to see it, and um, and and she said, I can't sit next to you when we're watching this film because you know because and I had this terrible thought that what would happen is because I'd really reviewed it badly that I would sit there in the cinema and it would start playing you know like when when Bonnie and Clyde happened and there was that very famous review who saw it over the over weekend he realised he got it all wrong, and I sat there so we were apart from each other, and I sat there and the film started you know it's all oh, best McNeil. Oh, Oh God is watching you. Or I'm doing both of them, all that stuff, and and I thought, no, I hate this. This is really, this is terrible. But the audience loved it. The audience absolutely loved it. And as the film went on, I got more and more panicky that Linda, my wife, was going to love it, and that was going to be the end of our relationship. And at the end of the film, the film ended. You know, oh, best she goes up and the bells ring in heaven and all, all that stuff. And there was this hushed silence. You know, people. Oh, it's a masterpiece, you know. And people started walking out of the cinema like really, really solemnly. And Linda got up from her seat like this, you know. And she walked and she kind of stood next to me and we walked up the thing. And I thought, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. She could love it. And I said, 
And she went, bollocks. I thought that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Married 30 years, so there we are. Okay, um, let's zoom on because we've got so much stuff to get through. A couple of here's the things. Uh, If anyone is going to the Latitude Festival... Oh, you are? Oh, fantastic. We'll see you there. Come and have a drink. It'd be great. You know, it's all free. Um, So uh, I'm doing two shows at Latitude. Nick and I are doing the How Does It Feel show on the Saturday. And then on the Sunday, we're doing a a, a podcast. What's the name of the new venue? It's called the Listening Post. Thank you. And uh, so we're doing a podcast there. Can I tell? Can I? Can I say who's going to be on it? Okay. So we're doing the Listening Post. We're doing. A, we're going to record a come out on film there with um, uh, poet laureate Simon Armitage. Who? Yeah. Thank you. Who I've known for ages. Owes his entire career to me. Only other concert angels fan in the world, as it turns out. Um, and I think Richard Curtis is going to be there. And the Guilty Feminist podcast is going to be there as well. So it's going to be a completely packed show. So please come along to that. That will be on the Sunday. Uh, moving swiftly on. Oh, yeah. How many of you are reading this? Yeah. All of you? Simon has managed to get the crowdfunding for Junior uh, uh, Film Stories. So it is actually going to happen. So Junior Film Stories is happening. And we wish Simon every bit of uh, luck with that because that's going to be a fantastic project. Uh, Also, sad a note, a couple of people that we've lost since the last time we were here. Uh, Rip Torn. Uh, yeah, and it was funny because I said to Nick, can we pick a clip from a Rip Torn movie? And we were thinking maybe something from The Man Who Fell to Earth or maybe something from Men in Black. And then Nick said, have, have you seen the fight scene from, uh, from Mates? And, and, and I haven't, right? Has anyone seen this film? Okay, it's a Norman Mailer film. And there is a fight sequence in it that goes on for about eight minutes between uh, Rip Torn and Norman Mailer. And basically, they're meant to be having a fight, but they actually start having a fight. The film is all over the place, but it's a really remarkable piece of footage. Here's a very, very small piece of Rip Torn holding his own against Norman Mailer, beginning by hitting him on the head with a hammer, and he can't be the only person who wanted to do that. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. Oh, that piece get off. No. Let me hit you. No, no. No. Hey! Would you cut this fucking idiot out? And... And if that doesn't make you want to see the rest of the film, I don't know what will. But believe me, the rest of it isn't as funny as that. Um, also, and this is, this is uh, really, really sad, uh, we lost Freddie Jones. I know that in all the, sort of, uh, the, 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 the newspaper headlines it said, you know, Emmerdale actor uh, Freddie Jones. But there was so much that we could have chosen from. We could have shown something from far from the madding crowd. But... I thought the audience being what it is, and because you know, I love Freddie Jones's work so much, and Toby has been a guest here on the on the show many times. We wanted to show this clip from Elephant Man, partly because it's a brilliant clip, partly because it features a very very young Dexter Fletcher, who of course there's you know Rocket Man is currently in cinemas, but also because the showmanship of Freddie Jones in this is just unbelievable. Life! 
of surprises. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant. Struck down on an uncharted African isle. Result. It's plain to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. It's just extraordinary. I say this every time. I mean, you know, it is it is a great loss, but brilliantly, they've left behind a, an extraordinary legacy of films that we can all, you know, love and enjoy for years to come, which is that great immortality of cinema. What a wonderful, what a wonderful actor. Okay, so let's move on now to coming attractions. Now, pretty much the whole of the rest of the show now is coming attractions. We've got such a packed show. Here is a uh, trailer for a documentary which uh, opens uh, very soon, and it's. Uh, well, I'll show you the trailer, and then I'll bring you the guest. Okay, here we go. I'm trying to learn some things about love. When your woman becomes her own content, and you become her content. That's love. The woman who inspired the songwriter and poet Leonard Cohen to write some of his best-known work has died. Dearest Marianne, I'm just a little behind you, close enough to take your hand. When this love letter came from Leonard, I think she felt that it was all completed. Poets, they're just elusive creatures who are married to their muse. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, and I'm very proud to have him here, Nick Broomfield. You have a choice. You can either sit near me or far away, whichever one. No, come here. I think it's... it's... I don't want to imitate Norman Mailer. That that clip is just crazy, isn't it? Unbelievable. Have you seen the film? No. No, you don't need to. That's kind of everything. (laughs) So, um, for those who haven't seen it, because obviously it opens a week on Friday, a a bit of brief background to the documentary. Which story is it telling? Well, I think it's telling uh, an enduring love story um, between two people who uh, had a very intense love affair but were a part of each other's lives right to the end. They died four months apart. And just before Marianne died, Leonard wrote this very, very moving letter really about their love saying that he was indeed dying too and if she reached her hand behind her she could just about uh, feel him touch him and it you know for me well amongst other things sort of reminded me of <coughs> loves and friendships that I've had um, including you know the fact that I was very close to Marianne at a particular time 
and I decided to make this film, uh, you know, at that point. So you knew her at, at the very beginning of your career because you say that she encouraged you to make your, your first film. So how did, you, how did you know her? How did you meet her? Well, I, I went to the island of Idra. Um, funnily enough, the uh, wife of the future Archbishop of Canterbury suggested I went there. We were on this weird cruise together rather fancy cruise, and she was like, what are, is a 20-year-old doing with all us old farts? Go to the island of Idra, which I dutifully did. And I ended up staying in a pension, which was called the Sin Bin, because... <laughs> well, it was actually called that. It was actually called the Sin Bin, because the guests of the pension selected the people coming off the ferry that they fancied. So I ended up there, and, and the owners of the pension were great friends with Marianne, so that's how I met her. And what kind of year was this? What period were we This was about? in 68. And because I've never been to Hydra, I've just seen your film. It, it, it's this extraordinary place that on the one hand, a wonderful you know, playground of the imagination, but also there's a dark side to it. Can you describe it a little bit? Well, I think it was a gathering spot for artists of one sort or another. It was very cheap to live in then. You could live there for under a thousand bucks a year. You could buy a house for $1,500. So there was incredible freedom, um, untold freedom really, incredible beauty, incredibly cheap retsina, drugs coming back from India, uh, plentiful, beautiful people who all started having affairs with each other. And I think unless you had iron discipline, which was pretty much what Leonard Cohen had, uh, you could easily run amok and just sort of forget why you were there. You could forget your art, you forgot, you lost your focus, you just kind of got consumed. One of the things the documentary does is it, it, it explains that people went there to create and to write, but there are also some stories of people who went there and it, actually being there damaged the entire mm. families. What is it about the place? I mean, it, it almost seems kind of strangely magical or mystical. As I said, I haven't been there. I'm only saying this from your well, film. you should go. I, I think <laughs> that I would last five seconds in that kind of environment. Is it... What I mean, is there something magical about it, or is it just the, the moment has passed? Well, I think it is still magical. It's still incredibly beautiful. Uh, a lot of the more eccentric characters have, have left the island, but it is still one of the most beautiful places in the world I've ever been to. In fact, I went there a couple of weeks ago to show the film. Oh, right. They have an open-air cinema there. It took them actually three days to get the film to play. The <laughs> First night was sound only. Second night was it only made 20 minutes in. But, uh, and I was so embarrassed, but one of the people who, the residents, said it was just perfect, 20 minutes. There was so much information in, in that 20 minutes. It, I would come back for 20 minutes each night. So there were, it was, and that's sort of typical of Idra, the sort of incredible optimism and beauty of the people and you know I was very uptight but they and it was a wonderful occasion being back there Is it possible to describe the relationship between Marianne and Leonard which the film uh, you know traces and one of the comments about it is it's like a love story in which for a large part of it they're not actually together at one point Leonard Cohen says this thing about we used to live together six months of the year and then three months of the year and we're currently living together two days of the year to which the answer is that's not living together that's visiting but, but the, the, what you know? Can you describe their relationship? I think that uh, 
for Marianne, Leonard was always kind of almost like her mentor and teacher. I remember going to her apartment, um, and there was a whole, which was very, very small, there was a whole bookshelf just dedicated to his work. And the, I don't know if you, you remember the, um, what is it, the, the bell that let the light in or the, the crack that came through. Well, I'm, I'm messing up here, which is I've forgotten some of the core Leonard Cohen memorabilia. Okay, here. I'm leaving that definitely okay. in your core because I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to play Leonard Cohen trivia with I, you. I think I'm going to try and wriggle okay. out of that one and just say there was a lot of uh, amazing. You know, it was it was almost like a sort of homily to, to Leonard, okay. and I think she was the person who also encouraged him to. Um, put his poetry to music and to trust his voice, which I think took a lot of doing, because I think he, he really never wanted to perform mm. at the beginning and so on. One of the things the documentary does is it, it kind of equates his success with a fracture in their relationship, that actually it's the point at which he goes away and discovers that he can perform these songs on stage, that things start to become, they become distanced. Yeah. Well, I think their relationship had been on this very romantic island. And then after his first album came out and he was very successful, he kind of moved into the Chelsea Hotel, which was full of other kind of tempting people like Nico and Janis Joplin. And I think Marianne never fit in with that crowd. She was very much um, somebody who, you know, she liked a very simple life and she went to New York and I think it was a very very sad and difficult time and, and it was a long, they, they spent a long time, I think, breaking up. They, they still, I think, loved each other but they couldn't really find a way of uh, including each other in that way in their lives. You're very careful in the, in the documentary to balance different voices that on the one hand people are talking about you know, freedoms of open relationships but we also hear voices saying well I'm not really sure what an open marriage meant and the sort of suggestion being that well it sounded like a wonderful idea but in fact in practicality people got left behind, people got hurt. But I think the thing that's lovely about the documentary is it's very uncynical. I mean, I think it is, it's a very open-minded piece. Is that how you feel about it? Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I very much wanted them to describe themselves as much as possible. I mean, I think one of the strengths of Leonard's poetry is that he doesn't attempt to paint himself as a hero. I mean, I think the strength is that all his shortcomings, there's a lot of self humor and self-mockery and a lot of his honesty in is what is really surprising I think which is he makes that into his strengths especially in his writing about his womanizing or about his obsessions of one sort or another his inability to commit all these things I think and that's probably what a great poet is somebody who can incorporate all of that sort of thing into your into his work are you a big fan of his of his songs i think i'm almost more of a fan i mean i loved his early work because uh, marianne played it to me I, you know i i kind of lost a bit of interest in the sort of around the phil Spector time which then, sounds crazy i mean phil Spector sounds like a total madman well i think it was a complete mismatch of the, the two talents. <clears throat> Cohen says that it wasn't about music, it was about guns. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, you know, he didn't have the voice to compete with the w wall of sound yeah. anyway. 
But and I, I think he was very interesting towards the end again too, when he kind of had a wonderful rebirth and, and was the happiest probably towards the end of his life that he had been. You've had an extraordinarily long career. I wanted to play a clip from an early piece you made about Eugene Terreblanche, and I remember seeing this when it was first broadcast. And um, do you want to just briefly say something about who who he was and what, what you were trying to do in this documentary? Because I remember it being a really striking piece. Well, uh, Eugene Terreblanche, I guess, was the leader of the Africana uh, party, which was basically the sort of Nazi party. Uh, which was very powerful just before Mandela came out of uh, prison. Uh, and, and then they committed a number of outrages. They bombed Johannesburg Airport. They beat up various, put bombs in townships and stuff. So he was a pretty, uh, <clears throat> he was a pretty unsavory character. Um, and, but he was taken very seriously, I think, by the South African press. And the idea was to make a kind of, um, well, a sort of, I, I always call it a black comedy about the white right. So, uh, you know, we tried to cause as much <clears throat> um, confusion with our presence as possible. Sometimes we were quite successful. This clip is great because um, he misunderstands a question and then he continues to misunderstand that he's misunderstood the question. And it is literally like watching somebody... The, the worst interview. Exactly. Okay, here we go. What do you want from me? Well, we wanted to ask you some questions about... Yeah, you can ask me questions, yes. What? At what point did you decide that it was a, a war? When I... When I... When I choose a time. When I choose a time, I will decide it will be war. Are you one of my generals? No, just asking you when well, you decided it was a war. Yes, when I decide it will be a war, I will choose a time. Are you one of the officers or one of the generals? So I will not tell you. But what I can tell you is we will never accept an ANC government over my people, okay? Then we will start the war, that day or that night. But that will be my choice. Now, what and I as you are not an officer or general, it's not necessary to you, answer the I question. I think maybe you misunderstood me. What I meant no, was I'm not misunderstood you. What I meant was at what point did you decide you might have to go to war? When I choose a time, I'm not misunderstanding you. I will decide when, and that is my choice. What I was meaning was at what point did you decide the AWP needed to be formed in order to fight a war if you needed to fight one? I asked, I answered your question already. That is my choice, my dear friend. <laughs> so, I mean, my question is this, because it's, it's brilliant, and it does that, you know, kind of Chaplin, great dictator thing, that he makes a fool of himself. But did you know at the time, how, because you had this kind of persona of, you know, apparently bumbling into things, but you've got a kind of a bit of a steel trap mind. Did you know, as you were doing it, that he was giving you exactly what you wanted, that he was making a fool of himself? Well, <clears throat> the, he had this terrible temper, um, and the, the secret in revealing the true Eugene was to sort of provoke him 
enough that he, because he would completely lose control um, and would just sort of, I think he, he never really took us very seriously anyway. I think he thought we were proper journalists, went out and did an interview and left. We were there for weeks and we were sort of, would hang out with the driver most of the time. So we were deliberately five minutes late for the interview and we let him know that we were having tea rather than being with him. So he was so incensed before we even got going. He basically wanted to reach over the table and strangle me, you know, and I looked at these enormous hands, you know, which would, uh, and so that was the beginning of the interview and it just got worse and worse, you know. You've, you've directed documentaries and you've also done dramas. Actually, very successfully you've done dramas. Do you, is documentary your natural home or do you, do you want to go back to more narrative filmmaking? Well, I think the thing I always find uh, absolutely wonderful about documentary is it's kind of like the Wild West. You don't really, you don't need a script. You can, it's, they're an incredible adventure. You go off and... You learn amazing things. You meet people you would never normally meet. And there are always incredible stories out there. Um, and they, they just give so much. To, I find so much to me making them. And I have incredible friends who I've met, you know, the most unlikely people uh, while making the film. So I, I find them sort of addictive to do. And you always learn so much each one you do. And you think, oh, I'll, I'll put all, I'll, I'll do it properly on the next one. You know, you sort of, because you inevitably make lots of mistakes. So I, I just find them very enjoyable. Dramas I find much more difficult because they're much more exacting and they're not, it's, it's impossible to have the same kind of chaos when you're doing, uh, a drama that you you have with the documentary. So you find that chaos creative? You find it productive? Well, I find it fun, um, and I think it is a very creative thing um, because you you can kind of. Pe I think people really reveal themselves with the chaos when they don't really know what's going on, and I found it very hard in drama to create the same kind of energy uh, that you that you get just with you know real people or normal people. But Marianne Leonard is definitely a love story. Can I ask you to say a little bit about the film that you've just finished making? About, about my father? Yeah. <coughs> we, we were talk, having a drink before this, so let's slip something. Um, well, yeah, I think Marianne Leonard was a, was a kind of voyage into making a more intimate kind of film that was more... Uh, well, certainly much more personal than mm -hmm. I'd done before. And the wonderful thing I found from it was that people would talk to me afterwards on a very intimate level. They would talk about their own feelings, their own loves, their own... And it gave me the courage to sort of make a film about my father, who's... He's got an exhibition next year at the V&A, and he was an industrial photographer. Uh, but he was from a working-class family... Um, and he worked in, a fact, in the factories, and he made these incredibly beautiful pictures that were beautifully lit and a sort of celebration of the worker. And I benefited, obviously, from his success, but I was brought up very middle class. So I had a very different view of his photography. I thought he was, his photographs were unreal and were advertising something that was inaccurate, you know. So we had terrible disagreements about that because I would film factories in a, in, and show all the problems and 
make them, you know, and he just thought, you know, so we had very different views. And although we loved each other, we went through a big combat creatively. But he lived to 94. And so we had plenty of time to sort of resolve our differences. And the, so the film is also about that. It's not only about his work, but about um, how, you know, it's sort of a love story by the end, you know. You said that Marianne and Leonard sort of showed you a way into that. You kind of, mm. you said, like, cause I think this, this, uh, this metier, if you want a less pretentious word, really suits you. I think you're oh, doing really you. your best work in this, so I really look forward to the film about your father. And that's indeed a compliment from, from you. We've, <laughs> we've had a couple of run-ins. We in the have. Past. <laughs> but you know what? We're all older. We and, are all and, wise. and And I'll tell you yeah. what, the other thing I'll say, Nick, I wouldn't change any of it, because I like the fact that you and I have had run-ins, but yeah. actually, we appear to and be... And that, that was why I was particularly keen to do tonight, actually. Well, I'm really, pr yeah. I'm really glad that you did. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, okay, so Coming Attractions continues. Um, we have got a trailer that we're going to show you for a film which uh, opens in September. This is the first time this trailer has been seen anywhere. It's a trailer for a new film uh, coming up, which, as I said, is in 20th of September. It opens. It's called uh, The Last Tree. Take a look at this. You are the first people to see this trailer. Send angels to encamp around Ulufemi. Teach him to be the head and not the tail. School's good, man. What are you going to do after? You can work for yourself and be free. You want to be free? I don't feel like we're living in the same house. I come, you go. Look, I'm sorry you're lonely, but it ain't my fault he's not here. You don't know anything. I know he left. And one day, I'll leave too. A man's got to do what he can to protect his family. What brothers now? You really think those boys are your friends? I didn't bring you here for this. I just want what was best for you. It opens in September. Please welcome the director of The Last Tree, Shola Amu.
Yeah, you see, the, the precedent has now been set. Now, you see, if he sat there, it would kind of... It would have been, been an issue. It would like a distance <laughs> thing. So it's, it doesn't open until September, but I've seen, I thought it was really powerful. You, can you just tell us a little bit about the story? For Obviously, most people haven't seen it yet. Uh, so The Last Tree is a semi-autobiographical story about a young Nigerian boy who is fostered in Lincolnshire by a white parent. And our story picks up when his biological Nigerian mother takes him from Lincolnshire to London, South London, to live with her. And he has to work out his new identity in a new space. And you say it's semi-autobiographical. How, I mean, it, the film feels very, very personal. And it'd be very easy to read the whole thing. as. I mean, how, how close to your story? I, I mean, it's like uh, I... There's elements definitely lifted from my life, but I also talked to people who had been fostered, other people who had been fostered, I'd been fostered, and other people, and, and kind of incorporated some of those other narratives that I'd heard as well. So I was, clo- I was close enough to get a degree of authenticity, but just the right type of distance to not, for it to be a full-on meltdown at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Was it fun to make? Because it's, it, it, as I said, something, something that feels very personal. There are moments of really, really sort of intense emotion in it. But it also, at the beginning, it has this incredibly beautiful memory of a sort of blissful childhood. We begin with the characters coming up over the, the cornfields and the sun coming up. I mean, there are things in it that look like you're just in love with what you're, with what you're putting on screen. Yeah, no, it's, it's because, you know, uh, the approach really settles on the perspective of the lead character mm. and from when he's a child to when he's older. And really what it is, is it's trying to capture that imagination you have as a child of what a place is like and gradually through that single perspective, peeling back the layers and growing and seeing what it really was at the same time. So it was really fun to make. Um, where we shot in Lincolnshire was really, um, uh, I, loved, I loved the landscape and I've shot there before and it just has a kind of almost uh, mythical quality to it. Yeah. And so, and we shot on the hottest day of the year last year. You know, it's a hot day in the UK. So really, that's really uh, fortunate and gave us the kind of sun-kiss uh, aesthetic that we were looking for. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's got that absolutely, you know, that really beautiful, glow on the landscape and I kept thinking you must have done that in post-production because no. there's no way that weather was actually in this country. It was literally the, the hottest day of the year last year and we got very, very lucky. And tell me about castings. Obviously you have a younger version of the character and an older version of the character. How did you cast the two, uh, the two players to play the one character? So we had an amazing cast and director, Shaheen Baig and Aisha Waters. They, they did a stellar job in helping us find. There's a lot of street casting. This film's like 90% discovery casting. In case people don't know, what street casting? Uh, just going out and finding uh, kids who hadn't done anything um, um, at different clubs and just bringing them in and workshopping with them, finding someone who's fresh and very new uh, but has really good instincts. Um, and that's really what we were looking for, for both Femmies. Um, and we cast older Femi, Sam Adbumi, first. Uh, and it took a little longer to find uh, the younger, the younger equivalent. Um, but um, we, there was a lot of self-tapes, so these tapes would come in, I'd watch a lot of these kids. And so people video themselves video themselves, audition. yeah, and send them through. Um, and then we just kept on settling on this uh, one amazing young kid, Ty Golden. Um, and he just had such, uh, once I decided to meet him, he just had such presence and maturity. I was asking all the kids questions like, what's your greatest hopes and greatest fears? And that's how I generally try and operate, particularly with actors, just asking a lot of questions, getting as much information as I can. And Ty, for an 11-year-old, he's like, greatest fear was like, uh, getting into, a, he's from London, getting into trouble with a gang and getting 
getting stabbed and stuff. And, and that's an 11 year old. Wow. And he just felt a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, pressure on him. And I just, but he handled it so kind of like, um, uh, with such regal energy, and I just felt like this kid's got so many things going on. Let's let's. This is the one. Let's work. Let's work with him. Um, and he just brought so much to the character. Because I, I only try and cast as much as I as I can, as close to the bones I can to the character, and then let them bring the rest. And he really just had so much presence and energy. But I mean, also those anxieties are absolutely key to what happens to the character. We see as he grows up, he's you know he's he's clearly smart and he's at school, but he's led astray to some extent but he finds friendship with a group that's going to, that can take him off in a bad direction and there's a there's a central teacher who sees more in him so it kind of becomes that thing about I mean the film shows you you can go that way or you can go that way but it doesn't do it in a way that feels preachy I mean it kind of felt that actually there were times that you were being very sympathetic about all the characters did yeah. you feel that absolutely because you know it's um it's also tied to the fact that we're really trying to make a film that's tied to a single character's perspective and there's a degree of immersion in that. So you feel, you see the characters somehow how he sees them. Yeah. And we're always in that perspective. That was kind of the idea of the whole film, single perspective and immersion. And so therefore it's hard to really kind of cast um, certain characters in what you would call stereotypically negative lights because it's obviously there's scenarios that lead to people being in certain circumstances and it was important for me to avoid that kind of cliche depiction of uh, a particular type of lifestyle and try and show the more of the 360 angle in why people get caught up in certain things. The score for the film is is wonderful. Who's it by? Shega Nakanola. Great. And uh, people may know him from Scala Radio, which I believe is a happening new radio station. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, Doctor Who and all the rest of it. Tell okay. me about working with him. Uh, Shagun, this is like my, with a lot of my core HODs, this is our third collaboration. I worked with him in my first feature, A Moving Image, which is like a multimedia art. I kind of see it as a feature-length visual art project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as he did the score for that, and then for a short film called Dear Mr. Shakespeare, and then this is our third film. And he's just amazing, very intuitive about music. Um, such a range of styles of you listen to the soundtrack of A Moving Image, and then you switch to The Last Tree. It's, it's the yeah. world's apart, and he's just so talented and honing that talent and exploring that talent on Doctor Who regularly so that's great for him um, and I'm, I was just pleased to get him back you know <laughs> so that was cool well, you really after Doctor Who he's not coming back I was like oh is he going to come and uh, is he coming back to the independent film space I don't know but he um, we have a great uh, relationship and I think every time we've worked together it's been an evolution so I think that's been intriguing and of course brilliantly if people wanted to see a moving image to kind of you know prepare for the last tree it would just be great if it was available on a bespoke uh, streaming service with an introduction by one of the country's leading film critics. Oh, that'd, that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. And, that'd and be I think, amazing. was it five ninety nine a month? It's like giving it away. It's just, it's insane, isn't it? It's just, if only that was the case, BFI player, don't miss it. Um, <laughs> so the, the response to the movie has been great. Uh, it was, you played at Sundance, yes. London, and were you there for the, for, the, for the first screening? What was it like? Uh, so yeah, we, I was in Utah for Sundance. Uh, we were in competition and that was, uh, we opened. How did that go? What's it like? I've never been to Sundance. Ah, it like? it's crazy. It was um, we opened the World Cinema Dramatic Competition, and it was. I mean, all the cinemas are kind of like makeshift, so they're not like cinemas; they're like uh, sports halls, or so that's quite interesting. Um, but the response was really, really strong, and I think I was out there with my with Sam, my lead actor, and some of the team, and we just really 
was soaking it all in. It was very surreal. Um, I'd played. What's the weather like? <laughs> is this Sundance is in like February, isn't it? Yeah, it's Jan, it's Jan, the end of Jan, and it's really cold. It's uh, so when you say we were soaking it all in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really cold. But you're packed in these uh, these cinemas, and so you, you've got the body heat that's helping you. And then and then and then you go out, and it's freezing. Really cold. Yeah. It's really cold, yeah. <laughs> and and did, did it. Did, did it, did it, what did it feel like to see it with an audience? Because I've spoken to people who were at that uh, that screening who just said you could feel the warmth in the room for it, that it was a very responsive audience. Yeah, I, uh, it was... I, I think Surreal really is the only term I can think of. I've played Sundance before, but with a short film, and it's a completely different experience when you have your feature-length film there, and it's, you, you know, you're hoping that you can get people to come and see it and it gets distributed in your home country and all that sort of stuff so I think I went in there with movie a little bit more pressure than when I had my short film <laughs> uh, and so uh, it was amazing to receive the warmth from the crowd and it's a film that you know compared to a moving image which is uh, very experimental it's this film has a bit of that spirit uh, but in more linear yeah. cinema fashion so I was really excited for people to take to a really personal warm story but also really take to uh, uh, immersive experience with a real interesting aesthetic that's really was really made me super happy do you know what you're going to do next have some ideas I have some ideas. Yeah, no, I heard you the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really, uh, I don't really want to talk about it until I, you know, those those ideas are like a bit more seasoned. Okay. Uh, give, but, me, give me a vague, what, with, you know, science fiction. Uh, thrill, uh, I, d- I definitely think I'm into doing some genre work, which would be interesting. Uh, that's probably the direction I'm going into. Um, and I've done two dramas of various degrees of personal and so I'm interested in finding a more muscular body yeah. to explore it's probably the similar theme same themes yeah. so when yeah. you say genre <laughs> you know it could be it could be anything from like a monster movie to sci-fi it could be yeah. you see I knew <laughs> I just, well that's fantastic so um, just as a last thing the film opens on September the 20th if you just had to say like a couple of sentences to encourage everyone in the audience to go and see it how would you sell it to them if you were the trailer uh, it's a personal tale about uh, a boy's search for identity that I think we can all relate to in terms of how we're all in an identity crisis with Brexit here uh, but done with a very uh, crazy immersive aesthetic that really heightens the central conceit. It opens on September the 20th. Please join me in thanking Charlotte Amu. Thank you so much. Okay, and the hits just keep coming. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I uh, met a filmmaker uh, in Cornwall who had made a really brilliant, it's not even short, 45 minutes is kind of like a, it's like a short, uh, it's not a short film, it's like a short feature called Bronco's House. Uh, the, his new feature, Bait, uh, opens here in a few weeks' time, but then we, immediately after MK3D, there is going to be a 35 millimetre presentation of Bait. It is a really extraordinary piece of work, not least because of the way it's been made. I'm going to show you the trailer first, and then I'm going to introduce you to the guy behind it. So here's the trailer for Bait. He was so posh, I honestly thought he was speaking German. <laughs> Losing your temper isn't going to help. I haven't lost my temper yet. 
Your old man wouldn't have shut the pub in the winter. Plenty disgrace you are. Sell out! Get out! Welcome to the stage, Mark Jenkin. You have to do the middle chair now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm you've actually turned up wearing flip-flops. Yeah, I was a bit worried about that, because I know you're a bit I'm strict a bit about what people wear in the cinema. I am, so yeah. I, did, I actually... <laughs> I, I wore trousers. You did wear trousers. Yeah. Well done for that. I went. I've been doing interviews today, and I went out in my break to buy some shoes. But then I was in a shoe shop, and I thought oh, I'll only wear them once. So do you? You don't. He do, won't notice. Do you not do shoes then? Not between March and October. So you go completely barefoot between March and October? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I had no idea this is where the interview was going. Instantly. So, so, so sorry. <laughs> why? Um. I don't mean why, as in you know, but but why? I don't know. Just it's more comfortable, isn't it? What, well, what, yeah, and being I, okay. What well, the barefoot brigade is in? Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's, it, and I'm, I'm asking you this quite genuinely because look, that is a solid shoe, all right. Yeah. Explain to me why it's more comfortable to walk in barefoot. Well, it's more comfortable to be naked, isn't it? Not tonight, but I mean, like, you know, it's. <laughs> I've really misjudged this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're in contact with the floor and the ground. And I, w I, walked, I remember walking from East London to West London a couple of summers ago, and I didn't wear any shoes. And people looked at me, and then I was walking past this building site, and this bloke looked down at me, and I knew he was, he'd sort of looked down. I caught his eye, and he was thinking of something to say, and I walked past, and he went, no shoes. <laughs> 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 and I thought, I should wear shoes from now on. <laughs> when I first uh, met, actually I think we'd met before, but I came round to your, your studio um, in Cornwall and because uh, I knew that you'd been working with film, which I'm sort of particularly fascinated by. And I remember the conversation went like this. I said, how do you develop your film? And you said, coffee? And I went, well, sure, but how do you develop your film? But that was actually the answer to the question. Yes. Explain how you develop film, because you work with film and, you know, cl clockwork cameras and, you know, the, the tools that were there. It was how, explain the coffee thing. Um, so I'd, I'd written a film called Bronco's House, mm -hmm. which I wanted to shoot on a clockwork Bolex, and I wanted to hand process all of the footage. Where my studio is, as you saw, is on the hill in Newlyn, yeah. which, and Newlyn is home to the second largest fishing fleet in Britain. I didn't want to hand process lots of film and put loads of chemicals down the sink, especially making a film that was concerned with fishing, yeah. and then poison the fish and destroy the, the fishing industry. Yeah. I was very concerned about where the chemicals were going to go. And I didn't know a lot about the chemistry at the time, so I'd looked into making something that was creating or working with a developer that was more environmentally friendly. So I was advised to use a coffee-based developer. It's called Caffeinol. So, and actually, coffee isn't the main, the key ingredient. Vitamin C powder is the main ingredient, but coffee's the, 
the alkal the, the base that this is oh gosh it's tedious isn't it no I think, the, it's, um, I think it's I think it's brilliant that you actually did it rather than most people who would think about it for four seconds then go no I won't I'll just but you actually did it yeah I've, I think it's partly my personality is quite contrary so it was if I always do the things you know do things the hardest way possible. Okay, so tell us about working with clockwork cameras, for example. What led you to that? Um, I, uh, God, it's, it's a really long story, but a, a few years ago I went back to working on film. I, I, I think I'd, I know I'd lost my passion for making film, and I decided um, I had to have an emergency operation. And, uh, because of your feet, you had a bit of glass <laughs> in one of them. I had my shoes removed. <laughs> um, I... <laughs> And I was, I was laid up on the sofa for about two weeks, and I couldn't do anything. So I thought, I've, I've got two weeks where all I can do is watch stuff on TV. I know, I'll watch Mark Cousins' story of film yeah. documentary three times in a row. So that's 45 hours of, <laughs> of the most passionate person talking about film in the most passionate way. Well, one of the most passionate. Yeah. <laughs> so carry on, sorry. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and I thought, I need to get back to that amount of passion, the passion that him and, and yourself share. So I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I decided that where I, I, I retraced my steps, and where I first fell in love with film was um, shooting Super 8. Mm. 1993, I got my first Super 8 camera. And I travelled from Cornwall to London with a roll of Kodachrome 40 to make... Uh, a film about London, called London, set to London by the Smiths. <laughs> Historically bad choice now, but there we go. Yeah, I know, it hasn't aged well, has it? <laughs> um, and so I thought, I need to get back to that, yeah. what, what, how I felt when I was that age about film and the excitement of shooting film. So still kind of recovering from the effects of a general anaesthetic, I went on eBay and bought the most expensive Super 8 camera I could find, which got me back into shooting film. And from there, I decided that a lot of uh, more sort of narrative-based feature stuff that I had in development, it would be interesting to apply what I'd, how I'd started making short experimental films yeah. to the narrative stuff. And the the step across was to to 16 millimeter. The obvious way to go was to get a Bolex because mm. it was the the cheap the cheapest camera in many ways, but the the sort of the iconic classic camera. And and it happens to be clockwork, and uh, that's how I got there. And you have now made a feature entirely uh, on this basis. One of the things that's great about it is that you see you know the kind of the scratches on the development. And, and Nick and I had a conversation about you know are all the scratches absolutely genuine? Because nowadays people put scratches and lens flare and stuff. But everything that we see is literally as you have produced it. We're going to watch a clip in just a moment, but it's it's as it's as it's shot, right? Yep, that's my absolute best attempt to process it perfectly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going to have it. We're going to watch this clip. The, the sort of a, a brief synopsis is that it's set in in a Cornish village in which there are various sort of rivalries and tensions, but we have outsiders who have come down who have bought an old fisherman's cottage they are they're not entirely popular with the, so it's about the tensions between the, the the indigenous residents and people like me who come down to cornwall and you know swan around being assholes exactly thank you <laughs> excuse me do you know what time it is it's not even seven o'clock 
You've just woken us up. This is supposed to be a relaxing break. What's going on? Snoop! Excuse me! He's got to go to work. What do you want him to do? We'll do it later. Should be making this kind of noise till at least 8 o'clock. I think it's actually illegal. You're going to change the tights run? I, I, I just love it, and I, for a number of reasons. Firstly, I love the way it looks. I think you've got a brilliant texture to it. But the sound, I mean, the amount of foam, because I, you must have shot it silent, right? There's no synced sound, yeah? Yeah, completely silently. So it's um, complete ADR months later. So, yeah, shoot it silently, hand process the film, and then start to build the soundtrack. And when you're there. editing, you haven't got a soundtrack, right? So how are you, edi- are you lip-reading editing? Yes, yeah, so from doing Bronco's House and this film, I'm quite a good lip reader, so I can can lip read all of the dialogue, and so I can watch the edit with no dialogue, but I can hear it all, if that makes sense, because I can, you know, and then, but then when it comes to showing the the first audience, which are part of the creative team, like producers and, you know, and and, and whatnot, I'll, I'll then show an edit where I voice quite a lot of the characters. Oh, you literally do like a live foley for it? Well, no, I record it. Oh, okay. Yeah. You don't send there and go, oh, yeah. No, no, I record all of the characters. That, that's the best version of the film. <laughs> and, then, and then I gradually get people back in to, to voice their own characters. On the Blu-ray or the DVD, will they be the version with you doing all the voices? <laughs> no. Oh, go on, please put that on as an extra track. That will, be just, that will just be great. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, <laughs> the film played in Berlin, and it got a brilliant... I mean, I've, it, the reviews have been really, really fantastic. What was it like when it first played in New York? Because there must have been a certain anxiety, you know, having taken this process and made a feature, and the, the amount of work and effort that's gone into it, Mark, were you at all anxious about it? Well, a few days before we'd done the cast and crew in Newlin Cinema, yeah. which seats... Screen One's the big screen, that seats 76. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was pretty terrifying for me. But it went down well. So I didn't. I thought, yep, the cast and crew like it. It works. Off we went to Berlin. I don't. I don't really like to fly, although I've had to get used to it in the last few months. So me and Mary, my partner, who's also in the film, we took the train to Berlin. So it took about two days, and we arrived about an hour before the world premiere at the Delphi, and we were staying in the Savoy opposite. And uh, did you have shoes on? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sell out. Because it was February. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so we, when we got there, there was a lot of people out in the street and people hanging around the Delphi, and I thought, oh, what else is on? And we went and got changed, had a quick nap, went across the road. Um, Mary, my partner, had, had borrowed a really expensive pair of shoes that cost £750. <laughs> And she was very nervous about walking across this cobbled street. So it took us about 20 minutes to cross the, the road. So by the time we got there, there was this big queue, and um, we just queued up. And then I think Lynn, who's here, the producer, came out and said, you know, come in, for God's sake. So we went in and said, what else is on? Nothing. It's a single-screen theatre. So that was sort of a... Wow. And then the audience went in. Have you been to the Delphi? No, I haven't been to Berlin. Oh, right. You go in, sort of midships, and to the right, 
there's 200 seats. So I thought, that's quite terrifying. To the left, there's 200 seats. And there's a balcony with 260 seats. And I've never been in a cinema that big. You know, just stood in it. So to see the film, it was... So then it hit me then. And um, so I was a bit nervous. And Mary was sat there, and she, she held my hand. And about 20 minutes in, she let go of my hand and wiped her hand <laughs> on my trousers and then held it again. <laughs> but it was, it was great, except for one moment, about five minutes in, this bloke sat front row, right in the middle, stood up and, and went to leave. And it's the slowest walk <laughs> I've ever seen. And he walked all, and I was thinking, oh, I hate you. <laughs> How dare you? And, he, and then as he got to the door and went out, this other person got up and walked out as well. And I thought, oh, here we go. Here we go seats yeah. are going to... So I was really down for a couple of minutes. And, and then the door opened again, and Matey came back in with the other guy. And I realised he'd just gone for a wee. And the guy, Five minutes in? The, yeah. It was a big cinema. <laughs> and and the, guy who, um, the, the guy who'd followed him out was an usher. So, and I'm not used to ushers anymore. I'd forgotten yeah, about them. Yeah. So... Um, so they came back in. So the euphoria of this elderly man walking back down to his seat, and I was, I, you know, I, did you get up and go see, see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and then yeah, and we came out, and um, yeah, a, another film critic had published a review. Peter Bradshaw. Yeah, yeah. While we were, you can say his name. I was at school with him. We're friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> and. Um, and I didn't even know we were going to get reviewed because we were in um, forum yeah. at the at the Berlinale, and he yeah, he'd he'd written this amazing review and given us four stars, and it all sort of snowballed from there. It was funny because then we looked at the review, and because I was thinking, oh, what line can we take out of the review to put on the poster? Yeah. But the re- if you've seen the review, it's crazy because he he doesn't he really doesn't know what to make of the film. <laughs> so there's no line that you can. He says, Bates like. Um, an episode of EastEnders directed by F.W. Murnau, which I think is my favourite. Because I think that covers a massive... Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. But, but, you know, it's not one you can put on the poster, really. <laughs> well, Mark, look, I think it's, it's terrific. And you and I are going to be back on stage uh, after this finishes. The screening of uh, the film is tonight is at 8.30? 8.40. 8.40, And there'll be the film, and then we'll do a Q&A afterwards. I, it, the screening is sold pretty well, but I think there may be a few tickets left. If you fancy coming along, then there is time to go out, have a drink, and come back in again. I will see you in about 45 minutes. And Mark, congratulations. It is a really terrific piece of work, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, really pleased at how well it's turned out, because I have to be honest with you. When you told me you were doing it as a feature, part of me thought, Right. Yeah. And then, but it. I saw that in your eyes. That's why I did it. That's what I knew. I've got to do it. (laughs) No. But and I just want to say thanks for the support. No, no, no. Thanks for being an early adopter. Well, you know, (laughs) us scumbag tourists have our purposes. Thank you so much. See you later. Okay, so 
in honor of the extraordinary lengths that uh, Mark went to to, to, to to make this film, you know, we used to, we do listomanias and we do them every now and then on a sort of slightly frivolous subject. So we said, oh no, let's do a list of the, you know, 10 really difficult films that got made in really co complicated and strangely difficult ways. I have to say the list in the end sort of ended up wibbling from here to there. And so it doesn't make much sense, but here we are. Here is our listomania, top 10 uh, difficult ways in which people made films starting at number 10. Now, I mention this because Mark has now, you've, you've now befriended Andrew Cotting, right? Yes, Andrew Cotting is a genius. And Leck and the Dogs is a brilliant film. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Cotting. In order to do Leck and the Dogs, which was adapted from a, from a play, they made up an entire new language because they could. And if you haven't seen Leck and the Dogs, do. I think it's available on BFI Player with an introduction. Am I right in thinking that? It is, yeah. And who shot that introduction? Nick? You did. Well done. Okay. At number nine... Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. The story of Karen Carpenter told without permission to use any of the music, but with animated Barbie dolls. <laughs> it's great. It's very hard to see because of the licensing issues. For ages and ages, you could only get to see it in schools. Now I think it's probably available on YouTube. Um, at number, I can't remember what number we are. At number eight, The Adventure of Prince Ashmore, which is just brilliant. This is, it's like silhouette uh, cutout animation, but done you know, individual frame by frame. This is a real sort of milestone in animation. Took three years to make. And it's worth, there's a couple of, anim there's a few animations in this because animations is one of the genres which is the most difficult to do. But that's a really, really great film. Took three years to make. At number seven, The Street. How should we make this difficult? Well, it's a 10 minute film, but let's do painting on glass because that's so easy to do. Uh, at number six, Loving Vincent, how will we bring the paintings of Vincent van Gogh, or van Gogh, or actually, as I discovered when I went to the museum in Amsterdam, von Hoch, von Hoch, von Hoch, to life? I know we will do the world's first oil-painted animated film in which every single thing is individually oil-painted by a team of people working around the clock. Again, took years to do. Absolutely brilliant. At number, I think we're at number five, Kubo and the Two Strings. I put this up there because this is basically here for all stop-motion animation. Anyone who has ever seen a stop-motion animation, this is a little behind-the-scenes thing. This is how much work goes into making a stop-motion character work. And there is a reason why they, that this continues uh, in this century of cinema because stop motion is just brilliant, but it is so labor intensive. Uh, at number, I think we're probably, I can't remember whether it's five or four, Scanner Darkly, get all your actors, film the whole thing live, and then rotoscope all of them out of it so that, you, so that the audience aren't actually looking at them, they're looking at an animated film. On to number four. Uh, Victoria, I know, let's shoot the entire film, which is basically two hours long, in one shot. Not the fake one shot of something like Birdman, but actually in one shot. They shot the whole of Victoria three times, and as far as I know, they went in the end for the second take. But the whole film, from beginning to end, without edits, and then they took the second one. And incidentally, um, Lycoster is, of course, currently starring in the absolutely brilliant Only You, which is in cinemas at the moment which do go and see it. It's really fabulous. At number three, uh, D.W. Griffith's Way Down East. In order to make this, they needed to have uh, their star on an ice floe. So they got their star and put her on an ice floe. Her hand and face were in the water and she got frost frostbite on both of them. Uh, number two, 
uh, Lady in the Lake. I know. Let's make an entire movie from the point of view of a character who you barely never see other than when he passes by a mirror. In fact, it's not the only time it's been done. There have been other POV movies. But just the logistics of making a movie entirely from one character's point of view are mind-boggling. And then at number one, and this pretty much stands in for every one of his movies, <laughs> your friend and mine, Werner Herzog, I want to make a film about somebody who's crazy enough to drag a, a boat over a mountain. How are we going to do it, Werner? Well, let's drag a boat <laughs> over a mountain. Of course, uh, you know, Herzog and Kinski had a sort of famously fractious relationship. I once asked him, I said, is it true that, um, that you, you pulled a gun on Kinski? You pulled a loaded gun on Kinski? He said, no, it's a story. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's all completely blown out of proportion. Never happens. Everyone says it. So I said, what did happen? He said, the gun was in my pocket. <laughs> I, uh, right, so the gun was... Was it a loaded gun? Of course it was a loaded gun. Why would I have an unloaded gun in my pocket? And I said... And so what happened? He said, I said, if you, walk, if you walk away, I will shoot you. And I had two bullets in the gun, one for him, one for me. But I didn't have to use it. These stories are all being completely blown out of proportion. <laughs> there is no filmmaker in the world like Werner Herzog. Frankly, thank God. Okay, there we are. Top ten most difficult movies to make off the top of our heads. Right. Back to coming attractions. I'm going to show you a trailer for a film which is coming out uh, in a few weeks' time, and then we're going to uh, welcome the writer and the director. Please have a look at the trailer for Blinded by the Light. The Cold War rages on. Reagan and Thatcher are still number one. But I'm stuck in Luton. No fun, freedom or future. Javid writes all the time. He's never had a girlfriend before. Is that against your religion? September 3rd, 1987. You got Wham Boys, Banana Rama Girls, and then there's me. Who here wants to be a writer? The writers I admire make a difference. Listen, if you want to succeed, do what the Jews do. Sounds a bit racist, Dad. Stay away from the girls. Follow the Jews. Come on, everyone. My family is stuck in another century. You do not know this country like I do. They will never accept you, beta. That's good to not fit in. This is our table now. Bruce, the direct line to all this true in this shitty world. Seriously, thank me later. I didn't know music could be like that. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt. Everything I've ever wanted. That's what you call real music. Springsteen. He's more what your dad listens to. Not my dad. Based on the memoir by Safras Mansoura and directed by Gurinder Chada, please welcome them both to the stage. Welcome to the show, both of you. It's a bit um, of a change from bait, isn't it? <laughs> well, we like to, you know, we like to, to have the, you know, the shifting moods. Um, so, tell me firstly, um, how close is what we see to your actual life and experience? I mean, obviously, you and I have known each other before because we've been on re review shows together. But I didn't know any of this about your life. 
Um, quite, basically, the plot is fictionalised quite a lot. Yeah. But the setting, the struggles, the emotions that the characters want and need and the fears they have, they're all true. So basically, what Springsteen says about his music is that the, the songs are auto, emotionally autobiographical. So... You know, the, basically the mum, the dad, and the, and, and the Javid character are basically very, very similar. But to try and make a film, when we were working on, on the story, we wanted to try and create a plot. And so the plot is fictionalised, but the background and a lot of the detail is real. Gurinder, tell us about how this kind of came to you and, and what you saw in that story of Springsteen. And I should say from the beginning that I'm, I'm not a Springsteen fan at all, or at least I wasn't before watching the movie. And I also confess that I cried through about 25 minutes of it. Well, uh, Safras and I um, had been friends, uh, were friends for a long time because... Were friends, what have you fallen No, 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 we're friends, we're friends. But we were friends before the movie, is what I meant, because he used to write about Springsteen, and I was a big Springsteen fan myself from my school days. And um, we thought we were the only Asians in the United Kingdom that were Springsteen fans, so we would sort of bond over that. And then he said to me one day, I'm writing a memoir about growing up in Luton. Um, And I said, that's fantastic. He went off to do it, gave me the galleys. I said, this is amazing. It's a great story. I know how to turn this into a film. Because what he had done in the memoir was absolutely tell his story. Um, but what he what he'd done is what a lot of us do as British Asians. You know, he protected his parents because uh, he didn't want them to sort of come over as a single, you know, dimensional sort of stereotypical. You can't do this kind of stuff. So he was protecting them. So so I knew to turn it into a film, I ha- it had to be dramatic. Um, and that's really what we worked on. And then in, well, sorry, before I jumped the gun, he gave me the book and I said, there's no way we can make this without Springsteen being involved. Mm. Unless Springsteen's involved, we don't have a movie. And as luck would have it, in 2010, um, Springsteen... This very... Here, yeah, Springsteen came here for the premiere of The Promise. I got invited. I took him as my plus one. We were two very sad people standing on either side of the red carpet out there, waiting for Bruce to walk round down along the river into the theatre. And we both had our cameras on like this, on either side of the red carpet, so we could photograph each other as he walked past. Um, <laughs> and as he came round the corner, we, we were getting very excited because people were clapping. You know, it's a wonderful moment. And then a miracle happened. As he came towards us, he bananaed over to Safras and said... So basically, uh, the other thing is we were filming on flip cameras back in the day, do you remember flip cameras? And so there's flashbulbs going and he kind of walks along. And I have seen Springsteen around about 150 times. And um, I've spent more time than I would probably like to admit outside hotels and stuff like that you know so uh, but the so, restraining order is now <laughs> falling away and... we're like that you know that this is me um, and um, we um, and so he kind of recognized me because I, I was on the front row of concerts in you know Italy France yeah. Germany Spain Sweden America not many Pakistanis with afros no. and, um, in those places. And so, you know, uh, we had a connection, at least an eyeball connection. So I, I had my book with me because I thought it'd be amazing to kind of give the book to him. So he, he comes over and then he stops and there's loads of people flashing. And he suddenly literally just stops, walks right up to me and says, I just want to tell you I loved your book. 
And then he said... That's how I felt. And then he said, oh, my God. You took the time to read it? You know about the book. How do you know? And I said at that moment, I mean, I was also awestruck. I mean, this was great, but I was like, this is it. This is the moment. We've got to get in there. And between us, gibbering as we were, I said, oh, Gorinda Chadder, I made Bender like Beckham. Someone told me your kids really like the movie, and we want to make a movie of Safraz's book. Will you support us? It's a five-second pitch. Five seconds. That was it. And he looked at us both. Bear in mind, like, everyone's standing around, and all his managers are behind him saying, get on, move on. These guys are losers. Um, And he kind of stood there, and, you know, he's got his his, uh, underbite, and he was sort of going like this, and then he went, sounds good. Talk to John. And John Lando was behind him, and Barbara Carr and Tracy Nurse. We uh, exchanged addresses with, uh, with Tracy, John Lander said, what are you talking about? What book? What's going on? <laughs> and next day he was photographed going into Claridge's with Safran's book in his pocket. Wow. Um, and then I said to Tracy, well, what do we do? And they said, well, <clears throat> he likes the idea. You should write a script. And then we came here to the BFI and uh, got some money and started working on the screenplay. And the thing is, like, Springsteen is, you know, he doesn't give his music away. You know, he doesn't need no. to. So I remember you saying, it doesn't, in the end, it's great if the BFI like it, if it's great if finances like it. The only person who actually can stop this film or make this film happen is Bruce. We, if he doesn't like it, nothing else matters. Because yeah. so, you can't do it without the songs, you're sunk. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So that was, like, that, that was the sort of North Star throughout the whole process, is would, be, would this be something that might that springs to you? But might I like? felt that for Safraz, because his story was so real and authentic and Bruce had already invested in it, that was great. From my perspective, I had to make something cinematic out of words and a writer. And and what I really didn't want to do was make a jukebox musical. That would have been the death knell, I think. And so I spent a lot of time, actually, going through... Bruce's lyrics, Safraz helped me as well, and I really poured through the lyrics to turn them into a script, into the narrative. And I think the idea was that this was not going to be some sort of, like I said, jukebox, like the, the music, the songs were going to be a character in the film, yeah. and they were going to propel the story. It wasn't just going to be, you know, let's get the greatest hits and let's see if we can crowbar them in. Exactly, That's that, hence putting them in the narrative. And then therefore making a film that was worthy of Bruce giving us permission to use his life's work. But so the idea, I mean, I love it in movies when two plus two equals five. And so this was, of course, coming of age for... Um, Safraz uh, or Javid but it had to be more than that and one of the other things I think for me particularly um, when it came to so we, we got so far with the script and then we parked it for a bit and I went off to make Viceroy's House yeah. and then when I came back I was like what am I going to do next and what was surrounding me was um, the ugliness of Brexit, the xenophobia. I mean, it was horrible. I remember being very upset with that uh, video of the African, uh, the uh, black woman on the tube, and someone just shouting at her on the bus, mm. right? And um, and and so all that anger and frustration, I just said to Sephora, "We have to do this now." Yeah. And this is the film. This is our our film that is going to unpick what was so horrible about 19. 
1987 for us in terms of skinheads, in terms of the National Front, in terms of all that visceral violence and, and the joy of seeing your way through that as second generation Asians to, to succeed, you know, in living full, fulfilled, happy lives yeah. now, but still, you know, dealing with the spectre of racism in this way. So all that really found its way into the last couple of drafts of the script, which we then had to send to Bruce um, for his approval. So he approved it. So he, he, we sent it off, he emailed every day saying, have you heard, have you heard, have you heard? I said, give it a month. Two months later, we got a message back. I said, what did you think of the characters? How did he like how he did the music? And Tracy said, he said, I'm all good with this. And I said, what? That's all he said. I'm all good with this. The interesting th- th- I was in, um, I was in Hay on Wye for the book festival. Yeah. And it was a couple of days before my birthday. And I had been haranguing uh, Gurinder to say, is there going to be, what's the response in it? And um, you rang me, and I was in Hay in this cottage, and, uh, and you just started singing happy birthday to me. Okay. And I was like, oh my God. And then you told me that. And I was like, and the hilarious thing is, I'd had actually, I was like, jumping in the air like oh my god Bruce likes it There's, we live to fight another day and I really wanted to go upstairs and tell my wife Bridget about it but we'd had a massive argument that night <laughs> and she wasn't talking to me and I was like the gear changed from whatever the mass argument about probably compost or recycling or something to going upstairs to say Bruce has said and so I ended up just jumping around in this cottage on my own <laughs> celebrating and then basically Bruce I said well what happens now what about the music because obviously we want to use a lot of songs and Tracy said uh, Bruce says he's all good with it and I said but does that mean that we can use all the songs in the movie Bruce says he's all, all good, good with it. it. <laughs> so bit, Bruce says he's all good with it. Go and make the fucking movie. <laughs> and then that's what happened. We then went off and made the movie. She said, don't worry about the music. Do what you think is right. And But then, you see, there's a big responsibility there. Because when you... When this man, his whole life has been about exploring his own, his own alienation, living in New Jersey, trying to find a way out of the world that he was, you know, he was supposed to be part of, yeah. his battle with depression, his battle with the fact that he never had the, uh, the, the, the praise that he so wanted, validation from his father, you know, um, and the everyday man story of Bruce Springsteen. That's a big responsibility. In that, in, and what was great was having Safraz's story to always come down to, you know, and being, you know, again, truthful. And also being British Asian, we always had that. But there was always a pressure on the fact that, because he had given us his life's work, we had to honour that in some way. Well, I think one of the reasons, I mean, basically, Corinne is the only person who could have made this, made this film. Um, and I think what really palpably comes, I think it probably even comes through to even somebody who's not a fan, is that there was so much love and heart and understanding and affection for Springsteen and what mm-hmm. he means in the film, which I think becomes palpable regardless of whether you like him or not. And you can substitute that for whoever your you know, preferred musical person is, because it was made with the right intention. Yeah, yeah, if I was making that film, it would have been the Comsite Angels, but sadly no one wanted to finance that. <laughs> they would have been fine with it, though. Um, can, I, can I show a clip? This is, sure. a clip, this is the, 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 the daytime uh, disco clip, in which because we see the character kind of you know, going into their own world of Springsteen. So here we go, here's a clip. This is a really big favour, Shazia. I know, but she's worth it, right? She's really pretty too. Anyway, 
Are you sure these lot's parents don't know they've bunked off school to hit a nightclub at 10 in the morning? Are you sure you're even Asian? I can't believe you've never heard of a daytimer before. Jesus, Shazia. You look like a Pakistani Madonna. Thank God Mum and Dad can't see you. That's what's so perfect about daytimers. We get to be us. <laughs> Come on. That expression on his face was basically the expression that I had throughout the script. And the, the thing that I, I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're here, because I sent you a message afterwards to tell you that, you know, that how much I loved it. And I loved it despite the fact that I sat in a screening with the most annoying person who came in halfway through and then ate noisy sandwiches and then checked their phone and then left. Was it Mark Cousins? Or? <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, I, I just sat there beaming and laughing and, and crying at the same time, and that which is my favourite combination of things in the cinema, laughing and crying. I just thought it was it was so it had so much vibrancy to it, and I'm I was delighted by how much I enjoyed it. How has it gone down with uh, with audience? Have you seen it playing with with audiences? Yes, well, our, our first audience uh, was Sundance, mm -hmm. a proper audience, and that was remarkable. It was remarkable. We had a well, we watched it and, and they started really getting into it. There's a sequence in an, in an airport um, and when that sequence played in America, everyone was really nervous. And then, uh, because of course Muslims come into an airport and then the way it plays out, <laughs> I think they were 100% relieved and then they just cheered and the whole roof went up. Um, and that's almost didn't make it into the cut, although it's based on exactly what happened to Safraz when he went to America. Um, I thought it was so cheesy that people will say, no, this wouldn't happen, because it wouldn't happen today. Yeah. And it certainly happened then. But after the screening, uh, we had this massive standing ovation, which was fantastic. And a woman got up and the first question, and she said, I was in Hillary's campaign, and this is the first time I've smiled since that night. <laughs> And I think what we've ended up doing is making a film that's very feel-good for America at a time when people like her really need something. Because what, what it's about is Bruce's values. It's, you know, his values about empathy, standing side by side, his famous quote, no one wins unless everybody wins. It's very much that vision of America, what America was founded on. And it's, a, it's taken a sort of British, Pakistani, you know, kid to bring that. Yeah. And that's, I think, what's, I think that's what Bruce ultimately liked about the film and I think it's interesting there's 19 Bruce songs and you chose the Bhangra <laughs> sequence well because it's a lovely it's a really lovely sequence well it's British as well you see I mean I, I used to go to daytimers so that was my thing not Saffron's thing but for me it was important to 1986, 87, 88 was the time that we as British Asians became British because of the whole Bhangra movement and with that came the fashion and the sense of uh, confidence and 
when you see the film, there are moments where, you know, it's the most visceral film I've made in terms of racism. I always shy away from that. But in this case, I was so upset. So we have the character being spat on by skinheads and people, you know, don't like it. And there are horrible scenes with the National Front uh, demeaning him. But in that moment, when the Asian kids are dancing to that music, even though he's listening to Bruce, it's a wonderful coming together, I think, of that two plus two equals five, because the words are, they can't hurt you now, they can't hurt you now, which obviously Bruce wrote for another meaning, but in the context of the film, that that's exactly it. You stay with who you are, your identity, and it protects you. I was in, um, went to see it, we, we had a screening in New York, and... Um, Afterwards, there was this after party, and I started chatting to these uh, this Jer- couple from New Jersey, and they were they were basically hardcore Springsteen fans, and that's why they'd initially gone in. And they were going on about how great the film was, and I said I actually said to one of them, "Can you just tell me, have you ever spent any time with any Pakistanis? Do you know any?" And they said, "No." I said, "So was it interesting for you to sort of immerse yourself two hours in basically a first the story of a first and second generation Pakistani immigrant family?" And the guy said. Yeah, but you're just a Pakistani version of us. Mm. And I thought that felt like something good had happened as a result of that, that they had been able to sort of transcend, as as Gurinder says, the divisions that are going on, to just say that. Actually, they could see beyond that and just say that you're just like us. Mm. And I thought that's the power of empathy and storytelling. I think the telling moment of that, uh, Safraz, was before that, was at, at Vegas, when we went to this thing called CinemaCon, which is where Warner Brothers, who eventually bought the film after a big bidding war, um, they launched the trailer, the first trailer. So CinemaCon is, like I said, it's Vegas. Everybody who owns a theatre is there. And they're from like Boise, Idaho, and all these places. And everyone comes, does their three minutes. Here's my film. Here's the trailer. Go and, you know, we hope you show it in your theatres. But for us that night, they were going to screen our film. So all these kind of real hardcore Americans, um, watching the movie and as and when they came out they were all in tears because of the dad the dad character and Safras was walking around Vegas and they were all kind of shaking his hand and back and back and like you know they're from all these different parts of America they've never met someone like him probably but I think the film just somehow touches I mean for me what what I like about this reaction that I'm seeing with men because we've just had that in Ireland as well just come back from Ireland and it's again it's all the the men who know Bono and people like that who I've been interviewed by on the radio they're all like talking about how much they cried and uh, in in the movie and I think it's a a, there is something about it's a film about masculinity and male coming of age but made by a woman Mm. and I think that's that's, there's something interesting going on there uh, that even I've got to process yet, but that's what I'm getting. There's a lot of uh, emotion from men. I agree with everything you're saying, except the bit about Bono. If you'd made it about Bono, I wouldn't have been on board. Anyway, um, I could honestly, I could talk to you about it all night, but we have to bring the show to an end very close. So the film opens in the UK in... August 9th. August 9th. Believe me, it's just a joy. You will laugh, you will cry, you will come out singing, you know, Born to Run, which I never thought I'd say. Uh, <laughs> congratulations to both of you. It's just a lovely, lovely film. Well done. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the-
Thanks for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast, which came live from the BFI South Bank at the MK3D show. If you like the sound of the show, you want to come along and see it in person, just go to the BFI website for tickets. But be warned, they do sell out pretty quickly. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to tell your friends and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.